Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast produced by Tell Me Studios for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision making. I'm Fraser McGrewer and I'm here with Peter Coghill and Chris Ragg of Aleph Insights. And this week we're discussing the connection between data and entertainment. So, as you heard there, we've joined by Chris Ragg. You've just joined Aleph Insights, so tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, yeah, so um, my background really is um, sort of over a decade working in, in government in various roles, supporting decision-making from everything from uh, sort of intelligence analysis and, and um, security and counterterrorism work through to um, speech writing. Uh, so the full full range of kind of civil servant uh, type roles. Um, prior to that, uh, a sort of academic uh, background, um, at, but uh, joined Aleph Insights uh, recently um, by virtue of my uh, interest in the stories of Borges. Well, of course, I think that's a, a de- an important requisite for for working at Aleph Insights. Yes. Did you hear our Borges? Um... I. I did. I did. That was part of the recruitment drive. So. There we go. Excellent. Okay, well, look, so as I said, we're talking about data and entertainment. So from what you just said there, you're eminently qualified to talk about this. So Chris, if you can lead us in on this, can you tell me how data is being used to measure and modify how we consume entertainment? And I, I suppose we're talking, what we see most about here, we're talking about film and TV consumption, I think. I think, unless... unless. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. I mean, I... Um... I suppose I first started thinking about this uh, based on my recent experience of watching the Netflix series um, Stranger Things. Uh, and um, I started watching it and th- thoroughly enjoyed it. But as I went through the show, I started to get this sense um, that it was specifically tailored for me. It, it, it kind of had all the things that I would look for, all the ingredients in, in a show. It was set in the kind of early 80s. There were lots of uh, geeky references to things like Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, it was science fiction. The mix of characters was right from the middle-aged through to teenagers through to young children. Uh, and uh, you know, representing the various stages of my my life, so I just I just got this sort of eerie sense that here was something that was that was perfect for me, and uh, you know, it almost been produced for me specifically. Uh, and it turns out that you know, based on um, Netflix collection and analysis of data, that it that it may well have been, if not tailored specifically for me, for for people people like me. Um, so one one thing I was going to ask is how that made you feel, and maybe you answered it because you, you said this eerie sense. Yeah. Uh, and, well, and... I, actually, I mean, it's, it's interesting because although uh, the the fact that I'd been modelled, I suppose, uh, didn't actually reduce my enjoyment of the series any anymore. Um, I, you know, I suppose it's a little bit like uh, when you have an attentive host who you know brings you that cup of tea at the at the right moment. Um, it, it, they've simply been observing what it is you like and are supplying that at the point at at, at which you want it uh, and you don't feel you don't feel a a sense of having been duped in some way by that and so it doesn't feel creepy it just feels kind of right yeah so it's got this benevolent 
omnis- omniscient, uh, om- omnipotent presence. Great. Nothing can go wrong there. Yeah. Um, so, um, okay, well, look, you started talking about the data there. I want to bring in Peter. So what are, what are Netflix doing to, to help us all feel, Chris and others, feel all fluffy and looked after like this? So what I, what I think they're doing um, is that they are making use of the huge amounts of data that they can collect about their their um, customers. So online on-demand uh, suppliers like Netflix, Amazon, Google, even BT and other sort of more traditional suppliers, they can collect by virtue of the platform that they deliver their, their content through a huge amount of information about you as individuals, so your your age, where you live, um, you have, you know, you're, they can do some sort of basic analysis and work out what your sort of family li- family life is like, your movements, etc. And they they can um, and also be also your your watching habits. So whether or not you've watched something to the completion, how often you've watched it, whether or not you repeat watched it, if you've and uh, and if you've recommended and shared it with people, all of this stuff tells them a great deal about how much you sort of like a, a particular show. I mean, also I think they know things like some obvious things like the date that you watch something, where you're watching it, as in your your postcode. Um, but they also know things like when you pause it and when you leave it and when you come back to it, your scrolling and search and browsing um, oh, yeah, habits yeah. through the through the interface. Um, I'm sure there's other sort of all sorts. Uh, they know what device you're watching on as well. Yeah. So um, so that's how they do it. So what's the next? What do they do next? And how do they get from having that data to to molding the entertainment, the in-house entertainment that they put out? So, so, so with that, with that data, it tells you a great deal about how successful any given show or any given episode or any given portion of any given program is, because you also can, you can um, detect whether or not people just watch a particular scene um, and share that because it's got some significance. Um, they, 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 you can build a model which correlates all of that data with certain facets or features of a show. So you can, you can. Um, analyze a show you can analyze a particular episode and say okay so in this episode there's a wedding and this thing happens and it's got these characters and it's got these actors it's directed by this person it's written by this person all of these are sort of features which um are uh, present in all shows and there may be repetition of some of these specific features across shows and then you can and then you, then you can you can you can model how popular a show is and see if there are any significant indicators in any of these features. Um, early attempts include Netflix. I think they had a quite a detailed genre system of different shows, uh, rather than just classic sort of comedy, action, etc. They were much more, uh, much more, uh, much more granular tags that shows were given. But beyond beyond the just simple classification of shows and features of shows, you can even really go down into you know what is the color hue in particular parts of scenes. What is you know what's the um, music to dialogue ratio? What what's the content of the dialogue? And I, th- I think that's that's really uh, relevant for a show like Stranger Things, where the tone of the show was very very particular. So it was everything from the opening credits created a particular type of um atmosphere about uh, about the show which was very redolent of um the types of things that people like me like so i i I don't know whether it is true but it felt like 
that had been based on some kind of analysis. Okay, so I've got a couple of things I want to say. I'm not going to say them yet. Um, but so that kind of, that's our foundation here, right? So through all the marvellous ways that they're able to collect data, they're able to commission types of shows that they'll, they'll know that their certain audiences will like, okay? So where do we go from there? So, well, well I think it's interesting because at, at the moment, um, so I think... You know, what computers can do is, uh, or rather what, you know, machine learning can do is to uh, tell you what the ingredients for success are, but what they can't do at the moment is create that success uh, or, or, you know, write write the, the screenplay for you um, or act in it or tell, you know, or direct it, tell you what, you know, uh, um, what emotions should be in each each scene? So they're not at the, at the um, stage to be able to to do that. But I can see, and you know, people listening may be thinking, well, it's you know, there's no substitute for good acting, for example, and it's preposterous to suppose that that could be done by algorithm. Um, but there may be, you know, the next stage may be more of a fusion between. Um, the randomness of current creativity and a bit more structure around that as to actually saying okay so you know across a 12-part series or something we we feel uh you know there are these general emotional ups and downs um and that you know individual scene uh patterns you know here's the most successful pattern of scene emotions for example yeah okay so i think that's that's interesting that's something i wanted to come on to actually one of the, which is to do we were talking about sunspring um this yeah this complements what we talked about a few weeks ago mm. was it sunspring if i got that right yeah the, that's right, yeah, yeah. the film that was computer that was screen written by a by a robot let's all call it and it was and it was bloody awful um so let's but but one of the things i wanted to that you mentioned there was it can improve or help the randomness of creativity which is an element of me that immediately doesn't like that um but actually that already happens a lot and you know probably since antiquity ever since stories have been told there's a certain formula that stories tend to have but also even now probably some of my favorite authors um there, there's 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 book writing software out there to mm. sort of help um the um the structure of a book but anyway the bit i want to explore there that chris started talking about was the the sunspring elements let's say and uh, peter do you want to come in on there yeah i think so so, uh, so i think that some your reaction to i don't like this in this incursion into creativity uh you could ask does it does it take some of the joy out of creativity does it take some of the sort of humanity out of creativity isn't um, the, sorry to interrupt you but isn't randomness one of the beautiful things about creativity but anyway go on. yeah well, possibly but i think it is is a feature the defining feature of creativity but you know if 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 you're if you're able to use the, all this data modeling to provide you with a stimulus for a seed into your creativity that is more likely to give people what they want and and by extension make your make you, you know, allow you to make more money uh, be more successful in creating shows there uh, and, and and so you're you're able to provide a greater amount of joy and enjoyment for for a greater number of people at, at a higher level of quality with a lower level of failure then you know potentially it's there, there is joy there there is a, there is increased sort of goodness in this situation i mean i think there's a there's a, a human uh a human trait to romanticize failure 
about you know the failed artist, the Van Gogh. Um, he was he was underappreciated in his lifetime, and then only met only met fame posthumously. Mm. Now, um, that's the, there's a romantic notion to that. But had he had something similar, so he could have been a jobbing artist making enough money uh, by painting what people wanted one day a week, say, and then the rest of the time he could have just done taken the safeties off and just created the amazing art he did he would have probably lived longer been help healthier and happier and we would have had more van goghs well i disagree actually because i think first of all he might have found his creative um spark deadened by having to do i'm i work in a creative field myself and i know what it is to have to sort of to do uh, commercial work that i'm really not keen on doing um, I mean, and- I, I, I think there are two sort of things I would uh, I, I would um, say there. What one is that um, sometimes constraint actually creates creativity. You know, it's the fact that you haven't got mm. a particular thing uh, which which enables you to um, to be more creative. So by setting uh, boundaries and constraints around what it is you're doing, that can sometimes uh, increase um, creativity. I would also say the current model of um, uh, creating something that is generically appealing in entertainment tends to lead to lowest common denominators. Uh, I would hope something like this would enable you to take more of a gamble on niche independent type projects so that you could say something like stranger stranger things may not be the biggest ratings success there is but they know um with greater confidence that the niche that they're going for will like this thing there's a defined niche they know what its requirements are and they meet those requirements and so actually it may lead to greater diversification and less generic scattergun approach to to trying to make yeah successful i think that's a good point because i was actually going to st- talk about this sort of generic and lowest common denominator but actually the point you make is is good because you can have greater faith that yes your audience is there and they will go for this and it can be niche Mm. and i mean what i was going to say is that you know before netflix was a thing you know say five ten years ago people were saying look this recommendations you get on amazon for example is just really actually um um, suppressing creativity suppressing us from exploring genuinely different stuff and I still think that's the case. So, for example, on Netflix, I challenge any... First of all, I look at the recommendations it gives me. And I think, why the hell are you recommending that to me? Because I have zero interest in that. And it just looks quite blunt, the the algorithms that they're using. But the second thing is, I challenge you to find more than about three interesting documentaries on Netflix. Okay, mm-hmm. they're just Most of them are just rubbish. And they tend to be quite American-oriented. Um, and I think the reason why is this is to do with... Um, I think it's for commercial reasons that it could be quite difficult to offer something that's genuinely different and esoteric, some slightly bizarre documentary that um, I think even that, I don't know, I think it looks, even that looks too dangerous, but surely even if it's not produced in-house, it can't cost them that much. I don't don't know the answer there, but nonetheless, I think you're right because something like, um, what was the American show about um, producing crack cocaine? What was that one? Oh no, about meth rather. Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad. I mean, fantastic. That's a great example. Mm. That's something genuinely different. And I was hooked. I absolutely loved it. And I think that is quite a different kind of show. So as a long, that was the last three minutes of me more or less saying I agree with you. Um, <laughs> so, so where are we? What, what, what next? Um, 
Yeah. So, so yeah. So I think yeah. The um, historically, uh, when production houses have said like we need we 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 want to appeal to a market of particular types of people, uh, we want to make this movie that's that's you know the the the, the chick flick kind of movie. We're, we're going to appeal to a certain type of people. I think the anal- the analysis they have you know previous have done analysis, but it's been very basic and demographic. So they've said right, we want to appeal to teenage girls between the age of 13 and 18 with this movie and we think we've got an idea of what movies they that appeals to them based on historical analysis but what this this highly data-driven approach allows you to do is say well we're not going to presuppose the classifications of people we're going to allow the machine to tell us what these unique people groups look like and what their intersections are so the output of a machine learning algorithm might not make any logical sense to us. So there might be groups of people that have common features, but nothing sort of physical or real-world commonality that we would recognize if we if we met them. But for whatever reason, their viewing habits and their viewing tastes are similar. And, that's, and that, that may be why some of the recommendations that things like Netflix uh, uh, present to you are odd, because part of your... Part of your um, part of your collection of your part of your class of people happens to overlap with a class of people that probably like something else but you're on the fringe and you're not within that overlap i think you're maybe right but i actually think the the reason is probably more prosaic than that which i just don't think they've got enough content hmm. that's what i think the issue is yeah but, but, I, but they, I think I mean, they, do, they, do, they, they do incur a cost whenever they buy a license to to host yeah. and there's a minimal very small but still a cost involved in hosting and distributing um things so they but, have to make a, a business call as to what's I, likely but, to but be i, I, I just wanted to, to sort of talk um you know on peter's point about uh demographics there and the evolution of demographics based on machine learning uh algorithms i think this is really sort of profound change that's going on at the moment uh that could have impacts you know more broadly on on society and and this is the notion that the traditional um demographic classifications that we've used to to predict things may be starting to break down as we get more valuable more insightful information about people so that actually you know age gender ethnic background, employment, those kinds of things, they may still have some predictive power, but there might be other things, if we're trying to predict your viewing habits, that may be much, much better and that we can't conceive of. You know, they're they're, um, sort of multiple variables collapsed together and we as humans don't understand them, but the machine machine learning algorithms do and they um, make us offerings on that that basis. And I, I think this this could be something that um, will will start to change us at a, at a societal level, potentially. And do you think, I mean, so, uh, I mean, what we're talking about here, I mean, we need to wrap up, but what we're talking about here is the application of big data, right? And in this case, the application of big data within entertainment. The, when you talk about changing our lives and changing society, I presume you're not talking just about within entertainment. You're talking about within all aspects, right? Of- yes, exactly. I mean, um, you know, I, I can see, I, I can see a situation where, at, at the moment, you know, we perceive ourselves predominantly through visible characteristics. I can see a time, or I can see the potential that we shift away from that way of uh, deciding, you know, what social. Uh, and ethnic group we are we are in towards viewing ourselves more based on 
um, classifiers that aren't mm-hmm. aren't visible but are only visible to computers um, yeah. and 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 potentially much more behavior based. So um, at the moment, it's easy to measure stuff like your age and your your sex and you, where you live and things, which is all um, recorded by various uh, institutions. Uh, but your but what you actually do day to day, what you watch, where you go, who you talk to, um, all of this stuff is largely unrecorded. But mm. more and more of it is being recorded by by um, things that we subscribe to, mm-hmm. our social media platforms, etc. Sure. So the, the, this provides you with a lot more rich data about how you know the t- drilling down into who a Fraser McGrewer actually is mm-hmm. and who he is more like. Is he more like a, uh, a, a a white middle-aged person, or is he more like uh, other people who have different characteristics other mm. than the age and his his racial background? Sure, nice. And anything else you'd like to say, Peter? Um, yeah. So I think another thing that these uh, new uh, provi- pr- providing platforms let you do, and Amazon definitely do this, Netflix do this. They, they... By the way, you say Amazon in a very American way, but go on. Sorry. Amazon, yeah, yeah, like that. Um, so they, they, what they let you do is um, produce a pilot program, and then uh, and then gather data on the success of that pilot, which gives you a great deal of information about whether or not it's worth producing series one, two, and three. Um, so what this means is it, it allows you to conduct a greater level of experimentation than was ever possible before. Pilot programs on terrestrial TV, etc would only ever really give you a, a loose figure for viewing, but would not tell you anything about who viewed it and whether they liked it. So it wouldn't tell you anything about how you then market that program mm. and, and what the target market is likely to be. So, um, yeah, I mean, Amazon spits out new pilot programs sort of on a weekly basis. Um, and uh, some of them are excellent, some of them are pretty atrocious. But, again, it depends on your particular taste. Okay, let, let's wrap up just by quickly asking either on on whatever platform whether it's netflix or amazon instant or whatever what's your favorite show at the moment peter i've uh, recently binge watched most of uh parks and recreation um and i don't know that one it's it's be, it's quite it was, i think it started around 2009 so it's been around a bit there's five or six series and it's very good it becomes quite formulaic uh towards the middle of the series but it's just so nice and um, sort of you, you you just fall in love with all the characters. They're so okay. endearing and, and quaint. And it's called what's it? Park Park Parks and Recreation. Okay. I will check that out. Is that on Netflix? It's on Amazon, but um, it's probably also on. It's probably on lots of different. Okay. Different. And for yourself, Chris? Uh, well, obviously, Stranger Things was yep. a big was a big hit with me. Uh, but uh, beyond that, um, I'm. Uh, not not shamefully watching, but um, uh, watching uh, Pole Dark at the moment and thoroughly thoroughly enjoying it. Oh, oh that is good. Yeah, interesting, interesting. And there's also it's nice. There's a sort of terrestrial program there. Um, yeah, for me, I think the most recent thing was Narcos, um, which I don't know. I, I do enjoy it, but I don't think it's that good, really. But I think it's all a bit cliched. You're just into I, your I, drugs, aren't you? you yeah, mean, that's Narcos you know, and yeah, well, bad and and assassinating and... stuff in Latin oh, yeah, America. Yeah, yeah. And that's me, you know. Um, and then the other thing, as you know, I was quite ill over the summer and I spent about two months in bed. And, and so I ended up watching Vikings, which is a series on on Amazon. And I think I've watched something like 36, 36 episodes <laughs> in, in quite quick succession. And I'm really a bit like with the Olympics. I've got a really bad, associ- strong association with feeling yeah. terribly sick 
and that, Vikings There might be a reason why you're sick if you watch 36 hours of television on the trot. Well, I think it's called appropriately called binge-watching, because mm. I did feel like vomiting at the end of it. <laughs> anyway. Um, okay, well, look, guys, thank you very much. Um, as always, you've been listening to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast with Aleph Insights, with Chris Rag, and with Peter Coghill. Um, thank you for listening, and until next time, goodbye. Mm.